where the control freaks are at the top, these intergenerational Rockefeller types, who really um, have been planning this for an awful long time, as I say, intergenerationally. They've never changed their tune or their goals, and mind you, they have all the money to back it all up as well, to make sure that they, uh, their ideas become governmental policies. And they're on a roll right now, an absolute roll, into uh, this horrific totalitarian brave new world scenario and they want to convince us that we should allow ourselves to be culled off to save the planet i'll be back with more on this after these messages This is Cutting Through the Matrix. Yesterday I mentioned a meeting that had been held in Germany to do with the environment, a big international meeting, where they said that environmentalism will touch every facet of your life. And that's what I've been telling the people for years. This is meant to control everyone under the guise of saving the environment because you see it's the same eugenicists that are running it all today and funding all of this they've changed their their camouflage a little bit and uh, and they're hiding under the bushes you might say of environmentalism and using this as the big stick to force their depopulation program along here's an article here this was done in april the first 2009 it's called mixing with malthusians by spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. And he says here, Brendan O'Neill ventured into a pit of population controllers and found himself holding his nose. He says, now I know what Greg Dyke, former boss of the BBC, meant by the phrase hideously white. Now, I've mentioned this organization before. It says, at the Optimum Population Trust's invitation-only conference at the end of last week, environmentally sustainable populations. They're using sustainability and environment, you see. Environmentally sustainable populations. There was a sea of white faces, gray hair, purple-tinted rinses, and blue blazers, as men and women of a certain hue, age, and class gathered to discuss the problem of population growth. In plummy voices and in-between House of Lords-style catnips, perhaps taken to re-energize their prejudicial streaks, the attendees spoke darkly of decimation, apocalypse, and tipping points, which is in viro-speak for apocalypse, in a world plagued by too many people. There's something unavoidably spooky about people who spend their waking hours fretting about overpopulation. Now, isn't that an understatement, though? I mean, think about these people do. There's something unavoidably spooky about people who spend their waking hours fretting about overpopulation. They're fretting about all of you out there living. That, that's what they fret about. You're alive. And, and who hand out leaflets saying, how many is too many? Illustrated with a picture of an innocent-looking schoolgirl, white, of course, doing population sums on a blackboard, which is black, of course, in a frequently asked questions section, frequently asked by whom? Benito Mussolini. The leaflet informs us that there is a severe shortage of water and land on this beautiful planet of ours 
and then ponders, what's the problem? The answer, in case you hadn't worked it out from looking at the program of talks on everything from scientific solutions and constant and, and contraception to population policies for the UK, the problem is us. Sadly, we are the problem. Humans, every year on 75 million of us, a population nearly as big as Germany's, are added to the Earth's surface. That's another Birmingham every five days, and God knows one Birmingham is enough. Looking around the lecture hall of the Royal, Stati- this is the Royal Statistical Society, Britain really came up with this whole statistics idea from the days of Malthus and graphs and stuff. This is a fitting venue for a conference that reduces everything to statistics. I was struck by the makeup of the audience, white-haired demographers, ladies who normally lunch but who today were discussing the upcoming apocalypse, comparatively young but equally posh soil association supporters. There was, I think, one person of not entirely white extraction. He was operating the sound system. You can bet that when these well-to-do worriers about the human plague on the planet talk about burdensome people causing congestion, overcrowding and loss of green space, they aren't talking about themselves or their friends or their neighbors or their mistresses. They're talking about, you know, them. Them, you know, them. The breeders, the not sufficiently educated, the dwellers of teeming cities, not only in Africa and Asia, but in Europe and America too. The conference confirmed that while groups like the the OPT, founded in 1991, have tried very hard to spin population control in terms of choice and environmentalism and to move away from that nasty eugenics of old, still some of the dark prejudices lurk beneath the surface. In her welcome address, Sarah Parkin, a former leading Green Party activist and OPT patron, set the tone for the day by complaining, this is what she said, There are no Nobel Prizes for preventing births, only for preventing deaths. Yes, that is because, call us crazy, mankind has traditionally valued the creation of life over the destruction of it. Perhaps the OPT should set up its own annual Malthus Prize to be awarded to the man or woman who does most to shudder, prevent people from having as many children as they choose. Parkin went on to say that while death remains a taboo topic, birth is not seen as taboo. I looked around the audience, desperately hoping to make eye contact with someone, anyone, to whom I might raise an eyebrow, as if to say, oh my God, they actually want to make birth into something shameful, unspeakable, stigmatizing. But there was nobody. Everyone nodded. Everyone agreed. This is the program of the OPT, to transform birth into a taboo, to rehabilitate, perhaps, the shame that was heaped upon single mums in the 50s and 60s and apply it to all women and their partners who think it is acceptable, even wonderful, they are so deluded, to get pregnant and give birth. At times such was the shrill problematization of birth, especially births amongst them, you know, them, that I felt that I should go home and take a shower. Professor Tim Dyson spoke loftily on the demographic transition which is when populations tend to balance out. In Europe and Japan, he said, the demographic transition is largely complete, but it isn't in West Asia and sub-Saharan Africa. Well, you shouldn't worry about that because Bill Gates is going to let all his mosquitoes loose there. Don't worry, that will sort that out. He reported that in recent decades, population in Europe had increased by a factor of two or three, in China by five, in India by five or six, and in some parts of Africa by 11. 
to illustrate what this means in massive, scary blocks, he put up a PowerPoint graph to show what population rises would look like in Russia and Nigeria in the coming decades. In Russia, it would be steady. The graph was a bit wobbly, but generally self-contained. In Nigeria, it would be exponential. The graph ballooned out like a piece of obese mathematics bursting at its seams, much like Nigeria itself, apparently. A woman sitting next to me actually gasped, which confirmed at least two things. Graphs can make anything look scary. And two, to these people, this is what new people in Nigeria represent, not individuals with needs and aspirations or potential, problem solvers, but merely the suckers up of resources, faceless, nameless blobs on a graph. Not bad, eh? Not bad at all. Because you see, that's what we're dealing with here, absolute fanatics. It wouldn't be so bad if it was a little club at the lower end of the scale, but these are very rich fanatics and very well-connected fanatics who are also going along well, actually, they dictate to the governments as far as this policy goes. Remember, there's a parallel government, and this OPT is only one little part of it. And Rockefeller has his own myriad of other front foundations in the U.S. financing many, many others. And that's what we are in this Fabian system, faceless. Faceless numbers, your social insurance number, that's all you are. That's all you are. And if you think they're not actually killing you off, well, don't go any further with your studies. Just look at the medical records since the 1950s to today. Look at the sterility levels across the world, and especially in the West. Look at what changed from 50 onwards on all the inoculations that were given in the bisphenol A and so on. Look at the cancers that are just bursting out all over. If you think that's all accidental, how come these rich characters these old, rich characters don't come down with these kinds of diseases. Ask yourself that. That's how bad it is. That's how bad it really, really is. Now, I've talked before about the spraying that goes on, and I've, ta- I've given many talks in the past about different uh, operations that were done on the public in the past by the military-industrial complex and your own governments. And I mentioned, too, that and I think Donald Scott has this in his own book uh, to do with the brucellosis triangle. He did a lot of study in using declassified documentation from governments in Canada and other countries, the U.S. and Britain. And uh, apparently, you know, they, they sprayed, I think it was a whole city of um, Winnipeg, Back in 48, the U.S. Flying Fortress aircraft did it, low-level spraying for over a week, and then they followed the, basically the health and death rate of the public uh, over a, a long period of time. This is quite common, very common. And I've told people there was no Cold War. The Cold War was used for many excuses, but they always intended through the dialectic to merge two systems together when we had been Malthusian socialized enough ourselves. Here's an, an article that was printed November the 6th, 2006. Only one of many, 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 many. And remember, this is declassified. So the stuff that's happening right up after 1964 to present, we won't hear about for 50 years. This is insider account, clouds of secrecy from the BBC. Now remember,
remember the BBC works for the government, so they spin a lot of stuff too. It says between 1953 and 1964, top secret trials were carried out using a chemical concoction of zinc cadmium sulfide to simulate how a cloud would disperse biological agents. The unsuspecting population in the east of England was sprayed covertly with the poisonous compound at least 76 times. Again, we're going back to the faceless blobs, you know, all those numbers down there. Mike Kenner is an open government campaigner who stumbled across the Norwich and Bedford trials and whose revelations prompted two government inquiries. And I'm going to continue with this after this break. article to do with the British government spraying biological weaponry over populations in Britain and they're not the only ones, every country's done the same thing and of course their daily spraying has now happened for 10 years on almost a worldwide basis mind you we'll all be dead in 50 years time when that's declassified that's how they work it Let's continue, I'll continue with this article, it says it says the unsuspecting population in the east of England was sprayed covertly with a poisonous compound at least 76 times. I remember reading an article at the time because they also used not only the RAF, the Air Force, but uh, the Navy as well, and it released gases off, uh, off the shore that blew across the mainland. This, this actual article here is about the aerial spraying that they did. It says here, that article by Mike Kenner describes how he uncovered the story using files obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. During November 1998, the Sunday Telegraph published an exclusive article by Rob Evans and Andrew Gilligan. It revealed that scientists from the Chemical Defense Experimental Establishment, the CDEE, which is at Port and Down, had in the past sprayed large parts of the UK with a toxic chemical compound, zinc cadmium sulfide. At the time of the article, I was already involved as an open government campaigner in calling for the Ministry of Defence to release more information concerning the 63 to 75 Port and Down public area biological warfare experiments, which had been conducted in my local area, South Dorset. After pressure from various members of Parliament and concerned residents, the Ministry of Defence eventually announced that they would commission yet another independent review which would investigate possible adverse health effects caused by the public area, the zinc-cadmium test. It says here, the first review conducted by Professor Brian Spratt, FRS, investigated any possible adverse health effects experienced by the residents of southern England who were exposed to the massive aerosols of live bacteria, bacteria as well, emitted during the Port and Down Dorset defence trials. During the following years, I used open government legislation such as the Code of Practice for Access to Government Information in order to obtain more information about the, the cadmium field trials. Initially, it was thought that 12 large-scale experiments had been conducted by the CDEE scientists. My investigations soon revealed that this figure was a vast underestimation of the true figure. 
By the time that the Academy of Medical Sciences had been appointed to conduct their independent review, late in 1999, the number of known experiments had risen to circa 70. Fortunately, examination of each newly declassified important scientific report revealed evidence of yet more as yet unknown cadmium field trials. Again, I would like to make a code of practice request to Porton Downer once more information would be released. By now, the tally of known public area of the cadmium experiments has risen to nearly 100. During the course of investigations, I inadvertently stumbled across a cache of papers relating to trials which took place over Norfolk in 63 and again in 64. These trials turned out to be the last in this open-air spraying program and were themselves unique because they involved the Home Office, that's like the personnel Homeland Security, and the City of Norwich Police. On occasion, this newly declassified material has revealed information which contradicts that which is contained in the independent review. In other words, they lied at the independent review, but that's standard too. On at least two occasions, official Portendown scientist reports have been discovered which were not even examined by the review. The first Portendown technical paper number 794 detailed a number of experiments where radioactive gas, radioactive gas, and the, the cadmium particles were released from AERE Harwell and were tracked for at least 60 kilometers downwind. But, it, it, you know, they kept talking about the Russians. I said, you know, you don't have to worry about Russians. It's your own governments you have to worry about. The second important technical paper, number 885, detailed the numerous, uh, about 36, cadmium field trials that were conducted by Porton Down scientists at Cardington, Bedfordshire, during 63. Even more importantly, PTP number 885 revealed that the chemical compound used in the 63 Cannington field trials, the cadmium, was sprayed by Portland scientists from a moving vehicle. So they're even driving vehicles through towns and villages and stuff. It's fantastic, you know, when you've got a, a socialized medical system because, you see, all the data and all the patients goes into central computers and so on, and the government keeps the data on everything as is happening who's dropping dead with what and so on, what's been diagnosed, misdiagnosed, etc. It says this would have placed local Bedfordshire residents in much closer proximity to the source of sprayed cadmium than previous trials which had sprayed, which had sprayed the cadmium from an aircraft. Spraying this material from ground level could have led to a much higher received dosage of inhaled cadmium amongst residents living close to the route of port and spray vehicle. The fact that such a large number of potentially hazardous field trials could be overlooked by a government-appointed independent review and only be discovered by an ordinary resident using open government legislation proves to me the true worth of Freedom of Information Act. Well, you better believe that. You better believe that. I'll also put these links up, remember, on my site at the end of the show. And there's another one uh, that falls right in with this. It's a video on the same topic. And you'll hear this character from the government uh, trying to say that it was really for, in the interest of saving the people, that they were spraying the people, you know, that this kind of stuff. Well, it's a Cold War, you see, and, well, if the Russians ever did it, we want to know what happened, and so on. This is how they, they waff it off. They waff it off to us. So I'll put that link up as well, and you can have a look at that. It's, it's fantastic what goes on. Same in Canada with Espanola when they sprayed us just a few years ago. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Alan Watts were cutting through the matrix. Just mentioning at the end of the break there that uh, even not far from me a few years ago, the little town of Espanola was sprayed for weeks actually by aircraft that came across the U.S. border into Canada with agreement, if it later turned out, with the Canadian government. And they sprayed the inhabitants there. And the inhabitants noticed, first of all, that even deer were being stillborn. Animals were being stillborn in the forests around there. Then they started having the same problems with the human population and various diseases and illnesses broke out. And those characters, good for them, they fought it all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was admitted, but nothing happened about it. So that's what government does. Well, yeah, it's happening, but it really wasn't us, which is technically true. It was the U.S., but it was done in collusion with the Canadian government. The same with the spraying of Winnipeg, as I said, back in '48, was done with the collusion of the U.S. and Canadian governments. See, we're just peons at the bottom here, and they're all Malthusian at the top, believe you me. The Irish Doctors Environmental Association, the IDEA, have come out uh, against genetically modified foods, and they want it all withdrawn. It says, uh, the Irish Doctors Environmental Association is opposed to the growing of genetically engineered plants and the use of substances derived from genetically engineered plants in food. IDEA calls for a complete moratorium on the growing and use of such foods. All such foods currently on the market should be withdrawn as they have been insufficiently tested. Genetically engineered food has not been tested adequately for possible adverse health effect. I would disagree and say it certainly has. They know what they're doing at the top. They know what they're doing. Just take that last step and you'll see the world in a completely different light when you take that last step. Since your present risk assessments are inadequate, we believe that the introduction of genetic engineering techniques to food should be every bit as thoroughly researched as its introduction into medicine. Genetically engineered food products are not tested if they are deemed, this is how they do it, you see, this is how it gets through, if they're deemed to be substantially equivalent to existing food. That's all it does, so they're not tested. They say, well, that looks like a carrot, so it's a carrot. And then it's on your table, and that's it. So good for this particular organization, Irish Doctors and Environmental Association. It's about time that someone uh, did summon. There's a lot in Europe, mind you, complaining about this stuff. And uh, it's so sad that in Canada, it was the guinea pigs for it all, we were on it for 10 years before it leaked out from Britain, we were the guinea pigs. It's so sad that they're so laid back and, and dumb about it. They're just guzzling away with the stuff. And, of course, the cancer rates and everything else is just going sky high. Every town and city is screaming for more cancer wards and treatment and so on. And that's not a surprise, is it? It's no surprise at all. And just before I go to the callers, I want to mention, too, that everything is an agenda is on track. You've, you've got some, in the Dutch news, you've got some, and it's from dutchnews.nl, the supermarkets there are set to refuse cash. They're going cashless completely across the country. And it says uh, Dutch supermarkets hoping to phase out the use of cash by 2014. This is the Financial Dagblad reports that on Thursday, quoting the retail board CBL, the aim of the ban on cash is to make supermarkets less, this is the excuse, listen to this, less vulnerable to armed robberies, the paper says. Oh, guffaw, guffaw. This is the rubbish they feed the public. That's the agenda, because they want to track everybody who's buying and selling. And one last article here. 
This is interesting because I said years ago on the radio, I said, you know, my first impression of the U.S. and Canada when you went into the different rural areas and even the outskirts of towns was how temporary everything looked with all the wires hanging, electric wires and poles and so on, crooked angles. And, and I thought, you know, they could flatten all this eventually and just bulldoze it. And it would be as though it had never existed. And we know that's the agenda for the future. They've all talked about the coming mayhem from the Department of Defense to do with everyone crammed into these, uh, these uh, internal cities that's already overcrowded because they keep bringing people in from outside. But um, uh, here's an article here today, and it's from The Telegraph. And this is wonderful how they present it to the public. U.S. cities may have to be bulldozed in order to survive. Dozens of U.S. cities may have entire neighborhoods bulldozed as part of a drastic shrink to survive proposals being considered by the Obama administration to tackle economic decline. <laughs> you have to laugh, don't you, when you know what's really going on. And so what they want to do is cram all the people into the middle, into the main city. It says here, the government's looking at expanding a pioneering scheme in Flint. To start there, it's pioneering and starting off there, but to go across the whole U.S. One of the poorest U.S. cities, which involves raising entire districts and returning the land to nature. To nature, you see. Local politicians believe. The small mate at the lodge. The city must contract by as much as 40%, concentrating the dwindling population and local services into a more viable area. In other words, squeezing them all into a small area in the center. That's right from, from um, Soylent Green, the movie. Right from Soylent Green. So there you go. So the radical experiment is a brainchild of Dan Kildee, treasurer of Genesee County, which includes Flint, having outlined his strategy to Barack Obama during the election campaign. Believe you me, it's way above Mr. Mr. Kildee. Kildee has now been approached by the U.S. government and a group of charities, you know, the Foundation Boys the charities, who want him to apply what he has learned to the rest of the country, the whole country. Mr. Kildee said he will concentrate on 50 cities identified in a recent study by the Brookings Institution. You know, the Brookings Institution and what they generally deal with, don't you? An influential Washington think tank as potentially needing to shrink substantially to cope with their declining fortunes. Most are former industrial cities in the Rust Belt of America's Midwest and Northeast, they include Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and Memphis. In Detroit, shattered by the wars of the U.S. car industry, there are already plans to split it into a collection of small urban centers separate from each other by countryside. Yeah, right. The real question is not whether these cities shrink, we're all shrinking, but whether we let it happen in a destructive or a sustainable, there you go, sustainable way. Sustainability, remember, also means population reduction, right? <laughs> Decline is a fact of life in Flint. Resisting it is like resisting gravity, he says. There you go. Quite the spark, this character, Mr. Flint. Eh? But anyway, that's what we get. That's the rubbish they feed the people at the bottom as the big agenda steamrolls ahead. Now we'll go to the phones now. And there's Dave in Arizona. Are you there, Dave? Uh, hi, Alan. Hi. How you doing? Um, you know, this kind of goes along exactly what you're talking about. I, if I could, I'd like to talk a little bit about predictive programming. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen two really interesting, good 80s movies. One is yeah. Blade Runner. Yes, yes. And, oh, yeah. and one is uh, Escape from New York. Yes. 
And two of the really interesting things that struck me, and it was actually frightening to me in Blade Runner, was the police state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How exactly it's like it is now. Yes, and, and there's dozens and dozens of movies out right now and coming out all on the same, the same agenda with massive police states, yeah. And they also, another interesting thing, especially in Blade Runner, they basically they show globalization, mm-hmm. and they show how the United States is basically going to be living like the third world. Yes, it is, yeah. You know, it's, it's basically our... Our style of living has been cut down to very minimal pittance, you know? Yep. But that is what's in the, on the cards, there's no doubt. Every economist will tell you, it's not all economic books, that the country that does manufacturing is the one that prospers for the people. Uh, if there's no manufacturing, you're, you're going down. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, what's funny is, if you go back to 1980, Here's another funny thing about Escape from New York. There's a deleted scene, Alan. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah. Or Snake, the hero guy. He mm-hmm. he's they deleted the scene, but he's ripping off a bank. Yeah. And he, when he rips off the bank, he rips off credit cards. Yes. Because <laughs> there's no cash. It's a cashless society. Yeah. And this oh, was yeah. 29 years ago. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah, they put they, way, way in advance. Even the uh, the THX movies and so on, uh, all of those movies show you a future, uh, and it's always the same kind of, of future, totalitarianism, uh, a world where you're, you're run from birth to death by the government. There's always these black-clad, massive army guys or cops. You can't tell the difference. It's a global system. Code 46 was very good, too, if you've seen that. It shows you it's a world where uh, certain people will be allowed to travel on business only, but and even then they only stay in a quadrant for a certain amount of time and they must get back and all this kind of stuff. And to do with breeding as well, who can breed and who will not be able to breed. It's all in that movie, Code 46. So, I mean, would you say that those are definitely examples of predictive programming? <laughs> oh, yes, they are. See, these guys um, in Hollywood... Uh, certain things are promoted. They come out with the blue from the very, very top. You, you know they're going to be a hit before anybody does anything on them at all. And uh, these are must-bees. Uh, and it's always the big producers who put them out there, etc. The writers don't get their idea any more than H.G. Wells came up with the ideas for his books by himself either. He was getting information from professors in Oxford and in Cambridge. That's where he was given his info. And his job was to write stories around them. The futurist society funded by the big foundations again. Um, uh, they're the ones that pick the, the novelists, the authors, and they tell them what to write. And they must always include overpopulation, uh, third world status across the world, uh, world army scenario, um, ID cards, all of this kind of stuff. They must include all of these things in their, in their novels. Yeah. And saving the environment, etc. <laughs> yeah, because the weather played a, a factor in that movie as well. Yes. It was pollution and lightning and all this kind of stuff. That's right. And it was the same as I say with Soylent Green. Soylent Green was funded by the Futurist Society once again, and they changed the name from Make Room, Make Room. It was funded to put out there a scenario with an overcrowded inner city population that would exist in the future, and everyone sort of walking over the top of everyone else. That really was the theme behind the story. So they control everything that we enjoy, and we don't realize we're being programmed for that which is to come. And therefore, when it comes, we think it's all quite natural. Yeah. 
Excellent. Uh, one question. You saw the movie They Live, right? Yes. Don't you think that Carpenter was basically telling us about how the TV and so forth, it's just mind control? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He, he was showing you the subliminals that are everywhere, only in a more overt fashion, and, and how there are people in the communities that appear to be like you, but they're not really. I don't know if most people realize this, when the main governments, your federal governments across the Western world, they give early retirement to many of their bureaucrats. And their job is to go into to, to little villages and so on and retire and set up non-governmental organizations on environment and the whole politically correct agenda. They've been doing this for over 30-odd years. Yeah, so they, I mean, they are it, amongst you. They are amongst you. And it's just it seems like it's just right now everything is just ramping up. It certainly is because they've got a timetable. Um, the military... Uh, the 90-page report from the British Department of Defense think tank and the one from the U.S. one, they're both in my archives and my website, uh, they spell out uh, 30 years of riots uh, with that kind of scenario, a soiling green type scenario uh, with inner city people, uh, which will escalate and escalate up to the year 2050. That's what they, they predict is coming, and that's what they're preparing for. Because yeah. they're going to make it happen. They're going to make it happen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It it's an honor, Alan. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling. Now, there's Cody in Nova Scotia. Are you there, Cody? Hello, Alan. Hello. Hi there. I just, um, let me see. I just became, I just, a book just came to my attention. Uh, Anatoly Golitsyn is the author. Yeah. Uh, uh, Paris. New Lies for Older. Uh, Perestroika Deception. Yeah. And also New Lies for All, but I can't find them anywhere. Yep. And um, anyway, I was wondering if perhaps you might uh, comment on them. Uh, I'm excited to have them. I, I Googled some of the information about them, but mm -hmm. do you have any comment on the Perestroika Deception, perhaps? Well, yeah. I mean, don't forget, it all goes back to the Rees Commission in the early 1950s, mm -hmm. uh, when the big Ford Foundations, Carnegie and Rockefeller, uh, had a, a federal investigation upon them, yeah. and he told Senator Norman Dodd that eventually uh, that the job of the foundations was to so radically alter the culture and, and life in the Western world, and especially in America, that eventually they'd blend it seamlessly with that of the Soviet Union. And then you go into the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome has also said they favored collectivism for the new society, which is communism. It's a totalitarian system, but they're using the Soviet techniques of government in every facet of your life, and, and that was the deception. Uh, Eric Margolis of the Toronto Sun uh, did the speech that Gorbachev made to, to the Politburo. It's still, still up there in their archives. You should grab it. And he said, you'll hear communism is dead shortly. That's when the wall went down. He says, don't believe it. We're simply moving into the next phase globally, and we'll merge with the West. Uh, this is all happening. So, yeah, it definitely is a deception. There it is. Okay, and then we see that uh, Obama just did an about face again, and now he's uh, speaking in favor of the um, of the of the health plan uh, subsidized by the government. Yeah. Whereas before he was saying, "Oh no, 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 we're not going to," but originally his platform was that he would. So mm -hmm. it, it's flip flop, flip flop around, and um, eventually they'll get there because you see, the health authority must become that. It must become an authority. And that's the purpose of socialized medicine. It becomes an authority uh, with governmental powers. Yeah. 
So why why are they delaying anyway this population reduction program? They're not delaying it. Look at the death rates and statistics of new diseases and new cancers. They can't keep up with the definitions of new cancers that are popping up all the time. <laughs> okay, so and then uh, of course with see, uh, all, all, all it happens is the media doesn't publicise. If the media doesn't mention we should all be concerned about this or that, we don't think about it. We're told what to think about by the media. But, yeah, you ask any doctor or, 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 or go and see undertakers, the business is booming. It has been for years now, and it's increasing. Yeah. And Codex Alimentarius will come into effect on December of this year, right? That's right. And they predict a billion people's uh, deaths, demise, within a year, they thought? Well, that, goes, that's, that falls in with the Optimum Population Trust. They say they've got to start getting us used to the thought of death. Death is good. That's what they said. Yeah. And imagine having, uh, are the people, imagine the people actually tolerating that garlic would become a federal felony offense, you know? Well, they'll, 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 to believe you me, the public will tolerate anything. Unfortunately, they'll tolerate anything until they're starving, then they riot. But thanks for calling. What? And then we'll go to Sean in Utah. Hey, there, Sean. Hey, Alex. Yes. Hey, I just, uh, I saw the Soviet story. Yeah. Finally. And yeah. yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for the recommendation. It was a really well done movie. Yeah. Um, I had a comment about it. I don't know if you uh, caught this. There was a point in the movie where uh, the narrator was saying, and then. Uh, yeah, hold on, and we'll go into that when we come back from this break. through the matrix and uh, talking to Sean from Utah who's commenting on the Soviet story is an excellent uh, video to see and he's going to say something that the narrator had said in the movie Are you still there Sean uh, yeah I'm here uh, yeah, what, uh, what are you course, saying of yeah. course you caught it I, you, you're the one that taught me how to catch these kind of things but there was a part in the movie where uh, they were talking about Stalin making an agreement with Hitler yeah. And uh, but they showed Stalin, I think, shaking hands with it looked like a American diplomat or something. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a really clever way of showing, you know, because that movie was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, international. I think he cleverly tried to make the connections. But I just yeah. thought that was interesting. Oh, oh yeah, the same guys that made up the big cartel for IG Farben all came from. They're all Western corporations. And they'd also helped set up uh, the Soviet system. And in the Stalin-Soviet pact, uh, they both worked on the same projects. And people forget that Germany invaded uh, southern Poland while uh, the Soviet Union invaded the north. And after the war, the Allies left uh, the Soviets to to have Poland. They they gave it to them, basically. Oh, yeah, that was just a really, it just caught my attention because, you know, it said that Hitler and Stalin made a pact, but it showed... I believe it was Stalin shaking hands with what looked like a Western, you know, diplomat or something. So, yes, oh, absolutely. In fact, America, America had set up the very first aid. They called it, they called it an aid organization, American Aid for for Russia, uh, after the Second Revolution, and uh, and they pumped millions into it. And all during World War Two, um, it turned out the U.S. was sending uh, ships with gold bullion to the Soviets to help them through the war. It was the excuse. And yet the Soviet Union wasn't on the gold standard 
has never been explained. The guys who, who found the Titanic did a documentary, and they were following the old routes where ships had been sunk, uh, American ships were sunk en route to the Soviet Union, and they did find one or two of the ships with, with just filled with gold bars uh, going to the Soviet Union from the United States of America. It's never been explained to the public. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. One quick question. I just uh, ordered a book uh, by William Shire. Yeah. Uh, the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Yes. Uh, it's a huge book. But uh, mm-hmm. is that worth uh, uh, reading? Uh, they're, they're worth reading. There's, there's, there's as much, you know, you can mislead people by omission of certain things as as, as, uh, as, as putting in the book. But, so you, but yeah, there's a lot of information in it that's worth reading. Uh, but you have to read other companion books as well to, to fill in a lot of the blank bits. <laughs> right. I just figured because of the massive size of the book, it's got to tell quite a bit. Yes. Okay. okay. Hey, well, take care of yourself, Alan. Yep, you too. Now there's um, Sean in Utah. No, no, sorry, it's Kevin in California. Hi, hey, Alan. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, I'd want to thank you for doing what you do. I know uh, it takes a lot of time and the life dedication, so I want to thank you. Uh, I want to tell everybody that's listening, they really should support you because uh, if they listen for any kind of length of time, they're getting a college education for nothing, uh, which is really valuable. Um, I want to talk about predictive programming. The Escape from New York made me think about that. Uh, just before Snake was sent into New York, they put a chip in him. That's so right. There's your your chip right. 25 yeah. years ago, and uh, it coincides with a recent patent request in Germany about the chip with cyanide in it, which has got to be the yeah. same thing. That's right. <laughs> I read that on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. They don't miss a it's trick, beautiful. though. They don't miss a trick, do they? <laughs> oh, there's a more recent one on General Hospital, which is a main soap down in the U.S. Um, yeah. It's been out for 40 years. It's... um. About two weeks ago, they had a surgeon. Of course, he looks like he's about 25 and hunky. But anyways, he did a, a brain surgery on a kid who was in a coma for a year. They put four brain chips in him. Four brain chips. Only two, only well, that's two the end ago. of the show, though. But thanks for calling. And, and they asked somebody how they show it to us. From myself and Hamish from Tier Canada, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>